Welcome to this podcast recording from the DFARM 2022 conference with Innovative Trial Designs Panel. The DFARM conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit theconferenceforum.org. Enjoy the podcast recording from DFARM 2022. Thank you all for coming, and I know we're near the end of our time at DFARM, so let's get revved up and excited because we've been doing a lot of conversation about disruption and innovation. We've been doing a lot of talking about different kinds of challenges, opening up DFARM with patient advocacy perspectives, talking about reverse innovation, talking about technology and how we can connect the dots. What is this panel about? Why do we add to the picture? We're taking it to the next level with trial designs, innovation by design. Not innovation because we have to, not innovation because we can, but because we're being thoughtful, a little bit of Kaizen, right? We want to design from the beginning with the outcome in mind that we're going to do innovation that makes a difference for patients and populations. So as folks are filtering in, there's definitely seats closer to the front. So just letting you know. All right. So for those of you whom I have not met, my name is Victoria Chu, and I head up clinical excellence and innovation at AstraZeneca. I have an esteemed panel of colleagues here, and you can see names, titles, credentials here uh, on the screen. I will be referring to everyone intentionally by first name just for the collegiality of the discussion today, and we'll definitely give everyone a chance to introduce themselves first. So maybe we start off there, um, and we can go with brief introductions, and then we'll start off with the first question. Go ahead. Come on. Sure. Hi, Camille Richmond um, from 10 minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> I'm a senior medical director um, at Takeda in clinical science, so in the R&D arm and uh, with a focus on trial design within the GI area. Daniel Millar, I lead strategic business transformation within global development at Janssen Research and Development. I spend most of my time working with clinicians and statisticians thinking about how we're going to take the portfolio that we have and translate that into statistical designs, robust clinical trials, and then working with operations colleagues to make sure that we can actually uh, fulfill that in practice and looking for partners to do that. And Cheryl Jacobs, I'm the head of global development operations at Amgen. So all of the operational components that you were just speaking of uh, happen in my team. Absolutely. So as you can see, we've got a really cross-functional group today. We're hitting upon all different parts of innovation. And so first question for our panel, and we'll start off with, with Daniel first. In a world that's evolving through the pandemic, what are key learnings and opportunities that we should consider as part of innovative trial designs? Yeah, you know, I, I think the, the as I think back through the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I, we all had a lot of time to do that, nowhere to travel. It's nice to be here today. Uh, but But uh, coming out of that, that period, you know, the, the thing that really strikes me is the opportunity that we have as an industry. You know, never before have we had so many eyes all across the world thinking about the value that clinical research brings to society. And that value being generating timely and reliable evidence to inform clinical decisions, to inform regulatory decisions, and thinking about the role of patients and healthy volunteers and vaccine studies, all of us can play with data that we might can contribute to that enterprise uh, a little bit differently than what we would have otherwise. So coming out of that, I think it behooves all of us to maintain that momentum and come back to uh, looking at those lessons that uh, as we reflect back, things that we were now able to do differently that otherwise would have seemed insurmountable 
how can we maintain the momentum behind that? How can we think about a different evidence generation machine than the clinical trials of the past, maintain the rigor behind the evidence that comes out, but think about different modalities, starting with a different statistical design, thinking about how we uh, cut time between phases of development, seamless designs, how we think about meeting patients where they are, themes of uh, direct-to-patient or decentralized trials, really taking the opportunity that uh, might be once in a generation. Absolutely. So once in a generation opportunities, thinking about statistical designs from the beginning, some of these complexities could include as well master protocols or other kinds of design innovation which would certainly be up to Cheryl and her team to be implementing. So maybe Cheryl, why don't you tell us a little bit about your perspectives of these key learnings and opportunities? Yeah, so um, innovative study designs have great scientific opportunities. Um, you know, master protocols, mm -hmm. seamless design. You can go for an, an actual submission off of a single protocol, um, which is all very good for the patients and from a time component, but it does introduce complexities from an operational perspective. So a few um, items that I would raise is just what are the watchouts on the operational side when you're doing some of these innovative study designs. One, the upfront planning is absolutely critical. Um, I, you know, everyone has talked in the past when doing traditional studies about critical path and what's your critical path activities to getting to a certain milestone or deliverable. In innovative study designs, I think the critical path definitions are absolutely what you have to focus on and, and what the teams need to focus on. Um, be anticipating that there's probably going to be increased study startup timeframes. Um, the design of your actual database, the design with your vendors for transfer of information, how you set up your drug supply, et cetera. It all introduces complexity that, that you have to kind of work through from an operational perspective. And for those who go to smaller countries to enroll patients, um, you know, outside US and the big five in Europe, et cetera, um, when you go for approval of these protocols in those particular countries, anticipate it's probably gonna be a longer approval timeframe. Um, a lot of the smaller countries are not as experienced and as knowledgeable about how these studies will actually benefit and they're used to seeing kind of singular trials coming through. So our experience has been you certainly have to plan upfront for some of that uh, delayed kind of approval timeframe. Um, EUCTR, uh, we're all trying to get our heads around what does that mean for us and the submission process and amendments going through, et cetera. I think a lot of what we've deployed at Amgen um, in our uh, master protocols and sub protocols do actually increase a bit the number of the amendments that you have on a particular study, we're still yet to kind of move through with EUCTR and, and thinking about how those submissions happen. Um, but we're anticipating that may actually slow us down a bit in certain countries um, where we believe we were faster in approval timeframes in individual countries than they will be in the collective moving forward. And then the last piece I would say for my statistical programming uh, group and for those of you out there, um, you need to also be prepared to do different cuts of data for different submissions to agencies and being able to do that um, easily within your technology and having uh, kind of planned and thought about that upfront. Thank you so much for that, Cheryl. And you've worked uh, across phase one through phase four studies. So one follow-up question before we pivot to Camilla. Any specific learnings opportunities working across that, that spectrum of studies? 
Um, <laughs> so one of the one of the things that I would say is um, previous to us implementing a significant number of innovative study designs, we had a separate early development and late development study management team, and unfortunately that construct doesn't work extremely well <laughs> when you have seamless studies and you're moving from a 1B to a 2 or to a 3, a phase 3, etc. Um, so we've had to think organizationally mm -hmm. um, about how we actually do that because, you know, you're, you're reducing some of the white noise, right, or the mm -hmm. white space between phases, but you don't want to artificially create kind of a handover in your internal staff. And it's rare that you have somebody that can take something from early development clear through submission because a lot of folks kind of tend to focus in early or late development. Um, so I think that's probably one of the biggest things is also thinking organizationally, like do you have the right organizational construct to manage these types of studies? Fantastic. Uh, over to you, Camilla. Any additional key learnings from your perspective? Yeah, I think I think from a sort of pure trial design, trial design perspective, and it's it's been mentioned previously, but but to take the opportunity to reinforce it is, I think innovation by definition, takes a little bit more time. Um, it is new, right? By definition, your internal SOPs probably never envisioned it. Um, you know, what you're trying to do, and I think that, you know, it, it is an initial barrier. It just is. Like, you got to talk to six other people to get anything. You know, it's just that added. Bless your heart, Jordan. You did most of it. But, um, you know, like that that extra layer of like, we're going to do it outside the standards. hundred times, you know, kind of thing. But, but like, right, so it's so critical, though, because if you can get that enterprise buy-in, of like, we're gonna call it a pilot, like call it whatever you wanna call it, <laughs> right? In, in terms of that, but to call that and get that enterprise buy-in, I think allows, or at least, you know, Takeda has allowed us the flexibility to try and sort of try some of these things. And, and it, you know, if you have the luxury of being allowed to, you know, fail on some of them, um, some of them are, you know, but that's, I think, part of what comes along with innovation is you have to be willing to take a little bit of that risk to say, okay, startup's gonna be longer, but we really think the data we get on the other side is gonna be better than what we've usually done, right? There, but we, we have to be willing to, you know, ante up those three years, um, right, right, to get there. So I think that's a real commitment that on an institutional enterprise level or TAO level, like whatever, whoever commits to these things, I think needs to sort of ante up in the, in the beginning because you really need that. It's, it's, it's rocky in the beginning, but to, to be able to get over that hump um, and keep moving forward. Can I just emphasize one point because you reminded me, the partnership with your compliance team is absolutely critical. Um, We've approached it more in terms of we're going to deviate and documented the deviations and everything, and, and eventually that becomes part of your process. Right. But that that relationship is absolutely key. That's the perfect segue there, uh, Cheryl, because I think it was over to you next. We've talked about some of these challenges, some of these opportunities, and I think really that big question for the folks in this room and in this audience is how we can practically work within organizations to address these challenges head on. So you've mentioned working with compliance. Any additional recommendations from, from your perspective? How has your organization risen to these operational challenges to really implement and deliver innovation on yeah. time, on budget? Uh, so uh, I could probably take the whole rest of the time. <laughs> um, I'll start with one. I think um, the way that you uh, track and manage your protocols and your systems, one of the things we had to do really early on was a system 
remediation across a lot of the core systems in Amgen because protocol number is kind of key. It links to SAP and all the different systems. So when you get into sub-protocols and depending on how you number them, you, we actually had to go through a pretty significant systems remediation. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've changed our governance completely internally. So previously we had scientific governance where folks would come and get technical and scientific input into their protocols. Um, and the operational pieces would kind of happen behind the scenes. Now our governance is structured where you actually discuss the scientific development of the protocol and the operational delivery and how you can operationalize that protocol and whether you can or can't. And it's given equal weighting. So it's kind of a 50-50 in terms of the science because you could design the most absolutely scientifically perfect protocol. But if I can't deliver it, you're not gonna get your data. So we've gone more to this kind of 50-50 kind of governance structure and the formal governance for our therapeutic areas um, have all adhered to that. Um, I think uh, another component for us is really um, thinking differently about site selection um, and not doing the typical process, but going into a deeper evaluation of your sites and their capabilities. And you've heard at the conference several times about you know, the infrastructure and the lack of resources at the investigator sites. These protocols are pretty complex with sub-protocols and whether they're complete, if they're actually enrolling in multiple components in your sub-protocol. And so you're gonna wanna really look at your sites and think about do they have the infrastructure that's needed to support uh, the complexity of such a trial. Um, we've evolved our trial oversight um, and relied, we had um, centralized and statistical monitoring and risk-based monitoring and things like that for about eight years. But we've actually, um, as a result of COVID um, and not being able to get to our investigator sites, have actually um, developed an even deeper amount of statistical um, oversight and programming and looking for outliers in our data, which has become very helpful um, in the innovative design space as well. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Um, that's a perfect segue for Daniel, coming from that statistical perspective by design. Yeah, I, I'm picking up on some themes that we discussed. I mean, getting involved very early on, you know, whether that's operations getting involved early or statistical designers getting involved early. But uh, starting at that, uh, at the phase of not even yet having a trial, there is a concept, there's a molecule probably, or it could be an acquisition target or it could be a disease area of interest and some clinical development plan to be built from that, but not waiting until we have you know, a protocol elements document or you know, a, a draft protocol. Many decisions have already been made in someone's mind by that point. And it'll be very difficult to walk backwards and say, let's take a little bit more time, let's look further ahead and reimagine what this could look like, either for a single asset or multiple assets. So being ready in those discussions to think about what the clinical trial landscape needs to look like for a particular development plan, if it involves partners, if it involves innovative designs, seamless phase two, three, uh, master protocol, something else, dose finding studies, being involved very early, but then also giving the heads up to operations colleagues who will be the next step in the value chain so that they can also prepare in these scenarios, what are the types of modalities that will be important to take into consideration so that that handshake is very well managed. 
There's a follow-up question there for you, Daniel, since you mentioned adaptive designs and, and master protocols. Mm -hmm. Would you like to expand a little bit on those specific approaches? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with adaptive designs. That's perhaps a little bit more mainstream. Uh, if, I, if I backtrack maybe seven years at Janssen, we, uh, within our portfolio, we were probably somewhere around 20% phase two and phase three uh, trials had adaptive features within them. And we saw the opportunity in that, but quite frankly, the operational considerations, the technology that would support uh, all of the interim analyses that we believed would be valuable, that's something we had to work through. So we set a target to double where we were, and somehow we blew past this. So we're at 60, 70 percent uh, being able to achieve that now as just part of what we do. So on the, the master protocol front, this was also an area of uh, you know, great exploration. How could we think about uh, our own portfolio you know, within? Uh, we have disease areas where we have multiple assets. We'll have long-term development programs. How could we create efficiencies across uh, teams? Uh, this, you know, to the uh, compliance comment, first thing we come back to is, do our SOPs and systems really support this? And you know, go through the audit experience of seeing, you know, where could we run into challenges and where do we have perceived barriers, but we can actually work through it, let alone being able to work with other companies in, in even more novel constructs there. Absolutely, Daniel. You mentioned a number of different uh, challenges within those specific kinds of designs, and certainly those designs are increasingly regulated, thinking about specific corp requirements to get those kinds of trials successfully through at the level of rigor that's needed for our patients and, and for our business. Perhaps, Camilla, you have some firsthand experience on implementation of, of technologies and, and really the impact of innovation on rare disease recruitment. Would you like to expand upon that? Sure, yeah, thank you. I, I think, you know, to your point, getting involved very early, so in terms of even, even around that sort of CDP development, right, if you're thinking about um, multiple potential indications, well, can you do it in a, you know, can it be sort of an umbrella trial or basket trial? Are, are there ways to build in efficiencies that sort of get everybody to the endpoint that they're looking for? Um, you can't do that if you don't talk about it in the beginning. It's, it's too late very quickly, right? So I think that challenge, I think the the other, the in terms of the the question about um, innovating around endpoints, around biomarkers, how can we get higher quality data that is, you know, frankly, the end game um, here? You know, in, involving um, what at Takeda is called the digital strategy team. Um, you know, as as a clinician, um, I, I have the luxury of these colleagues that I can go to and say, here is my clinical problem. Um, I'm stuck with, you know, condition X that presents problem Y. Um, can you help suggest a doodad that's going to, you know, help with this? Like, how, how can I measure this? And because I think what I'll tell you is I think, you know, clinicians are notoriously, like, conservative and narrow-minded thinkers sometimes. Um, and, um, you know, I think what, one of the big challenges, though, that I see is that, um, you know, this world is very eye-opening, I, I suspect, for a, a lot of your 
trial designers and sort of with a lack of understanding, like you're never going to suggest in your trial that we send somebody in a rocket to the moon if you don't know that moon rockets exist, right? It's just, it's, it'd be nice. Everyone would like to go to the moon, but it's not a choice. Um, and so until you understand that these are even possibilities, like someone's, oh, you know, you could do remote, you know, lung sound monitoring. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that was a thing. Um, you know, like that's opening up a whole new world. I've always wanted to know that. I just assumed someone was going to have to write down, yep, I coughed on a button, you know, or whatever. Like those are the sort of limitations that I think unless you're familiar with. So really, I think education, right, internally having these folks who have the familiarity, whatever they are, early adopters, you know, super users, um, whatever you want to call them, who can really share that um, with the group and disseminate the knowledge um, and, or build, you know, I think one of the things that, that I think has been an incredibly interesting initiative is to say, there are only so many clinical symptoms in the world, right? <laughs> uh, there's nausea, there's pain, there's, you know, whatever, I'm a gastroenterologist, um, right? There, but there are frankly only so many symptoms in the world. Um, and, but, but whether you're a, an oncologist or you're a neuroscientist, there's a lot of overlap, right? The neuroscientists care about nausea. Um, you know, the oncologists care about nausea. It's not just GI. Um, and, and can we create, can we de-silo, as I think a, a previous talk um, uh, addressed, can we de-silo this expertise so that we say, okay, like, here's your nausea smorgasbord, you know, to choose from. There are a whole bunch of different gadgets. They do different things. They measure it in different ways. If you're interested in measuring nausea as an endpoint, let's do that. Because I really, as a clinician, I think, you know, to get to where these are something more than exploratory endpoints, right? Um, it really is a question of, of the burden of evidence. Um, and so the more we do it, the more we're consistent about doing it, the more robust these data sets are to say, you know what? Like X that measures nausea is frankly better than any kind of PRO data we were ever getting, where my nausea is not the same as your nausea, is not the same as your nausea, is not the same as your nausea, um, where you have that real limitation. So I think those pieces of, of the early um, commitment, um, early planning, um, and really the education and awareness um, of folks who are who are building the studies, that partnership, um, both internally and externally, I think is incredibly valuable. We've heard about the burden of evidence, and I think that's something everyone in the room, judging by the earlier not-amateur, we were getting quite a lot of nods on some of these shared challenges. And I think that brings us back to one element of innovation. Innovation is hard. Being agents of change is a consistent challenge. It requires resilience and grit and commitment to that overall mission of curing disease, whether that's cancer or rare disease. Continuing to drive that innovation also requires breaking silos as well as collaboration. So um, you've mentioned a few items there, Camilla, on collaboration. Perhaps we can go over to really uh, Daniel as our next, next uh, speaker. Any thoughts on how we can really extend or engage in collaborative partnerships, whether that's internal or external, to help change the space? Yeah, I, I talked a little bit about the internal collaboration, but also thinking about the external collaboration. And you know, often as, as companies, we want to see our assets succeed in the marketplace. We want to make sure that uh, the things that we invest in become products and, and really get out to the, the broader patient population. But I think we also have to look at the broader field and the questions that we have, the things that need to be addressed, whether it's do we have the right technology to support our trials or do we have other challenges that we could better overcome 
making better use of the investment that we have if we did things in a collaborative construct. And uh, you can look at many disease areas and you know, look at the long history of uh, Alzheimer's disease and the billions of dollars that have been poured into this. And you know, still we have great unmedical, uh, unmet medical need uh, for a large patient population. So we've looked at the efforts of how can we work collaboratively to try to not all make the same mistakes in parallel, whether that's with technology or looking at uh, how we can advance the, the pipeline with uh, more streamlined clinical trials, master protocol or platform type of approaches so that at least you know, we should be able to share common controls. You know, we're not, we're not uh, so interested in uh, investing in patient numbers on standard of care where things really aren't working. How can we at least synergize on this, put more effort into learning what's working, what's not working within the development pipeline that we have. Absolutely, so thinking about how we can most effectively use our data, pooling data, there's a number of different uh, cross-industry consortiums that are looking at these possibilities as well. Cheryl, any additional thoughts on collaborations and really engaging partnerships for innovation? Yeah, so I would probably add, you know, the, the speed of development with the technologies in the healthcare space in general are just moving at such a rapid pace. I mean, even if you look at you know, the folks who are in the exhibit halls, many of them have been companies that have now existed for only a few years and several came out of kind of the pandemic. I think, um, you know, no one company can have the expertise internally and, and most companies look to kind of bring that intellectual information into, into the organization and leverage on our trials. So I think um, having individuals in your organization who are dedicated to, to looking at what technology is out there and what might be beneficial. So to the to the clinician who doesn't know if there's a sensor or something out there, um, I think our experience has been a lot of vendors kind of come into your company through multiple avenues and will reach out, but you're never quite sure whether you've got the right person. So if you have some designated folks who are almost the library of kind of what's out there and what's evolving out there in the technological landscape, I think that's more beneficial for the study teams um, in thinking about what are possibilities. And while those individuals may be able to look at kind of the technical components, leveraging and collaborating with some of the clinicians internally to kind of look at them and see, hey, does this make sense? Does this seem like something we would want to deploy on a trial? Um, I think is probably the best use of internal and external collaborations. And Cheryl, you've highlighted some really important points about discerning the right possible partner. I know we have a diverse audience today, including many vendors, many partners. Any, any question that you would have as part of your screening evaluation uh, for determining you know, what the right fit might be? Anything you would want our audience to know from that perspective? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, so coming prepared with experience of, you know, where have you actually tested um, or utilized sensors, wearables, et cetera, I think is very helpful. Um, you know, most, most sponsor companies tend to be risk averse to some degree um, and don't wanna be on the bleeding edge and be the first kind of guinea pig um, with a particular technology. But there are a lot of us out there who are like, hey, I'm happy to, to think about what's out there if you've got some test cases for us. Case studies, I think, are absolutely critical for us to evaluate um, where you're at with the technology and how far you've gotten with it. So I would definitely recommend, you know, if you get in contact with the company's case studies and actual information of other sponsors that you're working with is very helpful. I mean, 
we are competitors, but we do talk <laughs> uh, amongst ourselves. So I think that's also a way to benefit also the companies that are out there uh, providing the technology. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Any additional thoughts, uh, Camille and then Daniel? I, I just wanted to make one other uh, point about collaboration, and that is with the role of uh, patient advocacy. So, uh, you know, we, we think a lot about, hey, what it takes to actually get the job done. But uh, again, thinking very early on, not just in an abstract way, you know, what are the patient needs that we're trying to address, but the sooner you can involve patients in that process, you'll be confronted with a number of trade-off decisions and having the patient voice there to say, should we really prioritize that at this stage or should we think more broadly or work, spend some additional time working through some of the things that seem like impediments because it would be better serving either the trial population or the overall uh, population of patients that seeks the benefit. Sometimes we can be lulled into thinking, hey, this is complicated or it takes a lot of uh, technical expertise and does take long-term investment with patients, but they're actually very interested in contributing. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't second that more strongly that, that frankly, um, engaging with patients early on to say, you know, we're thinking about using a doodad. What do you think about the doodad? Um, is a doodad going to be workable for you in your context is incredibly valuable, frankly, both internally and externally. You know, there are a lot of people like, really? You want to have a nurse in the home for eight hours? Like, do people want that? Um, to be able to say, you know what? I have talked to them. They do want it. Uh, they're totally okay with it. In fact, they're really like feel comfortable with that notion that you know they're getting care in this condition that that frankly folks turn their nose up at it in in a lot of ERs and that kind of thing. So things like um, uh, it can be quite easy to be sort of paternalistic and put our own um, uh, sort of you know see things through our own veil of like well I wouldn't want that. Um, but to have those sort of actual conversations because it's all for patients you know. It's it's a risk-benefit trade-off, and and if the unmet need, you know, what what will fly in an oncology trial might not fly in a GI trial, or or what have you, right? Um, but but neither one of them are, are empirically good or bad <laughs> um, ideas or concepts, and so I think really sort of understanding from that patient population, from the trial population, is this a thing that's going to work for you in your condition in this context? Um, you know, and, and especially for things that are waxing and waning, like you, you got to make sure that it floats for all of those um, contexts. So I think that's really critical. And people, in my experience to date, patients have, have been thrilled, right, to be part of that conversation. So um, it, there certainly is not hard um, to get input. Well, the time has flown by, and we've had a good conversation about the importance of internal collaborations, external collaborations with vendors based on expertise, and certainly, and importantly, that collaboration with patients as partners in, in all that we do. In the last few minutes here, perhaps we can start off with Camilla, then Daniel, then Cheryl. In three words or less, uh, what would you like uh, the audience to consider or take away, especially as we're here at DFARM, to build better, to implement innovative clinical trial designs in the future? Uh, okay, so I get to go first, thank God. Um, uh, so I would go with innovate, advocate, um, and celebrate. There's a lot of good coming out of this, and it, like there's, it's hard to, but, but I think those pieces really, um, it's worth the effort. In three words, efficient, patient-centric. So those two concepts, efficiency and patient-centricity, can coexist. We need to be able to do that 
And innovation can't only mean adding things on top of what we already do. We have to rethink and rationalize. So I would say strategize, plan, and innovate. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, 10 words for us to take away over to the next session. Thank you all for your time and attention. And again, onward for our patients. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from the DFARM 2022 conference. For more information, please visit theconferenceforum.org.